Amen. Good morning. We're going to be looking at one of the most relevant and mysterious parts of the New Testament this morning, the book of Hebrews. Relevant in the sense, if you're looking for a, a part of the Bible that's going to tell you what it means to follow Jesus at the beginning of the 21st century, you won't find a better place to begin than the book of Hebrews. At the same time, it's mysterious in that nobody knows who wrote the book. 1900 years ago, Christians were talking about it and saying, it's great stuff. <laughs> we got no idea who wrote it, though. And there is a great deal of debate about who the intended audience was. But of all the different theories that have been promoted about who that audience might be, the one that makes the most sense to me is this. It was written to young adults, people who had left their homes to go to the big city, to Rome, to get an education, to get a job, to become a success, to make a name for themselves, to prove that they mattered. And to them and to us, the Holy Spirit, speaking through whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, is saying the thing that you need most is rest. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 4. You can find it in the Bible app if you wish. You can look under the seat in front of you and find this ancient piece of technology that has endured for over 500 years now, a book, and follow it there. Read with me if you will. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he is somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, 
so that no one may fail by, may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we do not approach your word this morning or under any circumstances in confidence in our own goodness, because we are not good, or in confidence, Father, in our own intelligence, because we're not smart. We approach it, Father, in confidence in your faith, in your promise to us that you've told us when we come seeking wisdom, you'll pour out your Spirit on us and teach us. Teach us this morning, I pray, as we turn to your Word, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me again in verse 3, if you will. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's a quote from Psalm 95, and it requires a little background explanation. You remember in the Old Testament, God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Remember the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh's army, feeding them with manna and quail in the wilderness, and sustaining them with water from the rock. And afterwards, he brought them to the land of Canaan, the land that he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. It said, here, it's yours, take it. And do you remember how they responded? Numbers chapter 13. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against those people. They're stronger than we are. Again, the next chapter, Numbers 14. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Have you ever been over backwards to try to take care of somebody and have somebody just complain the entire time about it? Uh, what, in your opinion, would be an appropriate response to such ingratitude? God's response here, no rest. Seem like an odd punishment to you? Think about it just a bit. What would you consider to be the least important of the Ten Commandments? And by least important, I don't mean... Uh, the one that God cares about least. 
God cares about all of them. I mean the one that you could ignore and have most of your Christian's friends really not matter one way or the other. No other God before me. Well, the I am real spiritual but not religious crowd wouldn't be upset by that, but all of you would be, and rightly so. No idols. Well, if I had a statue in my house, that would probably get me into trouble. But as long as my idols are invisible, I could probably get away with that one. Uh, Take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the kind of stuff my mother used to wash my mouth out with soap for. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't be greedy. Ignoring any one of those is seriously problematic, right? But I've left one out, haven't I? The fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Uh, Nobody pays any attention to that one anymore, do they? And nobody really cares if I do. Well, almost nobody. This fascinating little book was written about 11 years ago. The Sabbath World, Glimpses of a Different Order of Time, written by a Jewish woman, Judith Shulevich. She had grown up in an Orthodox Jewish home and as a result had come to hate Fridays and Saturdays. She hated Friday because she had to spend all day in preparation for the Sabbath on Saturday. And then on Saturday she hated it because you weren't allowed to do anything at all. She couldn't wait to grow up and spend 24-7 working and playing and doing whatever she wanted to. Until a couple of years later, she began to notice something strange happening within her. I'm going to give you her description of it, if I can, here. About a decade ago, I developed a full-blown weekend disorder. Perhaps because I'm Jewish, it came on Friday night. My mood would darken until by Saturday afternoon I'd be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends, and swapping tales of misadventure in the relentless question for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. I started spending Saturdays by myself. And after a while, I got lonely and did something that as a teenager profoundly put off by her religious education, I could never have imagined wanting to do. I began dropping into the nearby synagogue. Simply put, Ms. Shulevitz began to realize that when she had denied rest, she had denied something essential. It's not just her problem, now is it? Our culture's relationship with work is seriously out of whack. We abuse work more than any culture that has ever existed since the beginning of time. It is, in part, a technological problem. Once upon a time, you actually had to go to work to work, right? 
Now, given computers and the internet, your work can be with you at home all the time, 24 hours a day. Uh, there are benefits to this, certainly. For years, my older son, Ian, lived in Long Island, New York, and worked in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, the advantage of this was that his wife was doing a residency in, med in uh, pedi pediatric medicine on Long Island. He could be with her and at the same time still work at the University of Colorado where he's working right now. There's a bad side to it too, though, and it's pretty obvious, I imagine, to most of you. Uh, when your work is at home, the only way that you can avoid your work at times is by leaving home. And in addition, the same kind of technology that makes it possible for you to live and work at home makes it possible for the businessmen in China to compete with you here in the United States, which creates even more pressure on you and your work. Part of our problem is technology, but it's not all of it, and it's not the most important part of it either. Ours is a cultural problem. In traditional societies, your worth depended upon who your family was, who your mom and dad are, and where you're from, uh, your hometown. Now, these kinds of things don't matter much anymore. What matters to us is what you do. And that makes your work way more important. Now, even raising children can become a way that we justify ourselves. I'll give you a quote from Ms. Shulovitz again. Parents no longer set up swing sets in the corners of their backyard. They hire professionals to erect sprawling wooden castles that consume half the lawn. Parents line up at 5 a.m. to get slots in just the right neighborhood preschool and bring their children to specialists upon noticing the slightest delay in speech or motor coordination. Desperate to maximize their children's levels of attachment and developmental capacity, they turn marital beds into children's, into family beds, flash baby Einstein cards at their three months old, and enroll toddlers in nonstop improving activities. Now, even raising children becomes a competitive activity for people. We are in trouble. Ours is the most workaholic society in history. And as a result, no society has ever been as restless as ours is. Look again at Hebrews 4. If you have some trouble following the text here, you aren't alone. Because you see, the writer of Hebrews uses the word rest to mean several different things here. Look in verse 3 again. 
as I swore in my wrath, for we who have entered that rest, believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter that rest. Here, rest is the land of Canaan. The land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And the connection between the land of Canaan, the promised land, that rest, and Canaan was clearer to them than it is to us. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15. It's not going to be up there. You'll have to listen to it. God said to his people, You need to remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You hear the connection there? Being slaves in the land of Egypt and observing the Sabbath. What in the world does one have to do with the other? It's pretty simple, actually, in the end. The only people who work all the time are slaves. Which means, for a Christian, taking a day of rest is a subversive activity. That first way that rest is used in this passage is the land of Canaan. The second way in verse 4. Here, rest is God's rest on the seventh day of creation. I was doing a study with the book of Hebrews with a group of students a while back. We got to Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his labors. And one of the students asked an obvious question. What's it mean that God rested? Think about it for a moment. It doesn't mean that he got tired. (laughs) One of the perks of being almighty is that you don't get tired. So what does it mean? What Genesis says is that God made a good world. It didn't need doing anymore. He was satisfied with himself and with what he had done, so he rested. Do you ever sleep and not feel rested? Do you ever wonder why? That's the case. The fact is, there's more to resting than stopping being tired. Miss Shulevitz said it like this. Most people mistakenly believe that all you have to do to stop working is not work. The inventors of the Sabbath understood that it was a much more complicated undertaking. You can't downshift casually and easily the way you might slip into bed at the end of a long day. As the cat in the hat says, it's fun to have fun, but you have to know how. This is why the Puritan and Jewish Sabbaths were so exactingly intentional, requiring extensive advanced preparation. At the very least, a scrubbed house, a full larder, and a bath. The rules didn't exist to torture the faithful. They were meant to communicate the insight that interrupting the ceaseless round of striving 
requires a surprisingly strenuous act of will. One that has to be bolstered by habit as well as by social sanction. Understanding her point? Working is simple. It's just what you do. Rest is way more complicated. It has to do with how you look at yourself and it has to do with who you are. I remember years ago, back in the dark ages when I was a student in college, uh, coming home for Christmas holiday and not being able to relax. I was ill at ease. I felt out of place. I, 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 I couldn't enjoy anything. And then I recognized why. I was feeling guilty because I wasn't studying. Now, I was fanatical about grades. Yes, I confess that. But I imagine that even those of you who were not as fanatical about grades as I was can understand this feeling, right? I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove that I matter. I have to prove that I'm okay. And I don't measure up until I've accomplished something. It's a feeling that no vacation can cure. And until that feeling is cured, it'll make you a slave. See the third way that rest is used in this passage at the beginning of verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. The rest here is different. This is the gospel rest. And what the writer of Hebrews is most concerned about here is how we get that rest. Look again in verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is confusing. <laughs> I mean, the rest of the passage is about rest. This is about being dissected, being naked, being exposed. Uh, what in the world does that have to do with rest? It's actually pretty simple in the end. Genesis chapter 1, Adam and Eve were naked. And being naked for them wasn't a, wasn't a problem because they weren't guilty. And because they weren't guilty, they had no anxiety, no fears, no insecurities, nothing about themselves that they felt like they needed to cover up. But when they sinned and turned away from God, they covered up big time. They made clothes for themselves from fig leaves, remember? Because they weren't okay as they were any longer. The same thing that drove them to cover up is the thing that drives us to be fanatical about work at times. Of course, our cover-ups are generally a little more subtle than Adam and Eve's were. I have a question for those of you who are single out there. Do you ever daydream about
being with someone for the rest of your life that isn't physically attractive? Why? A question for all of you. Do you ever daydream of a future without much money? Why not? These are our fig leaves. The things that we wrap ourselves up in to make us feel okay about ourselves. And until you see your spiritual nakedness as you stand before God, you'll never understand verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God has from his if I'm giving you the impression there's something inherently wrong with work this morning, that's not what I meant to do. There's nothing wrong with work. God Himself works. It only becomes bad when it's the way you justify yourself. Repenting of evil is hard. Repenting of good things you do your work is even harder. Think about it. You're good to be kind to people, sure. But if you're doing it in order to make other people be kind to you, it's manipulative. Is it good to be kind to people? Yes. But doing it so that God will bless me is wrong. Is it good to be kind of people for people? Yes. But if you're doing it so that you can feel okay about yourself, it'll kill you in the end. Because the problem with this kind of work is you can't do enough about it to make yourself feel good about yourself. You remember the old movie Chariots of Fire? Any of you see Chariots of Fire? It won the Oscar for Best Picture back in 1981. It's the story of two people. Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell. Abrams' best line in the movie is simple. When that, they were both going to run the 100-yard dash in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And Abrams says, when that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds in which to justify myself. Eric Liddell says, I know that the Lord made me for a purpose for China. He became a missionary and died in China during World War II. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Two men, one of them working to discover who he was. The other one working because he knew who he was. And as a result, one is always weary, even when resting. And the other is always resting, even when working. The question you need to answer this morning is, which one do you want to be? Look again in verse 13. Begin in verse 12, pardon me. 
The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Greek word that's translated exposed here is the same word that we get our English word tracheotomy from. It literally means to pull your head back and to make your throat exposed to the stroke of a knife. In the scriptures, it's used most often to describe uh, sacrifices in the temple. Here, it's used to describe us as we stand before God. Our sin in the face of His holiness. What possible hope do we have? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be robed in the robes of His righteousness. He was cut off so that we could be brought in. He was rejected by His Father so we could be adopted by His Father. And when He was done, He said, It is finished. Not just His work of redemption on our behalf, but our work to justify ourselves. Apart from Jesus, there is no rest. Apart from Jesus, every day is the same. And the law of the jungle, the survival of the fittest, applies equally every day. If you rest, you die. Only Christ can say, Come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In a moment, we will rest together around the Lord's table. But before we do so, let's pray together. Dear Lord, we try so hard to clothe ourselves in accomplishments that do not last. Please, we pray, set us free from the slavery of our own pride. Remind us of Your great love for us so that we might confess our sin before You without fear and be clothed in Your righteousness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.